the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts and program, and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Another... Uh, Big number posted on jobs for June, just as we had an unexpectedly positive and big number, a couple million jobs in May. Uh, AP reporting 4.8 million jobs created in June, dropping the unemployment rate more than two percentage points down to 11.1%. That's got to be terrible news for the cultural Marxists, including those in governor's mansions in blue states, uh, as they hope to keep things shuttered and the economy idling for at least the next five months. For more on what those numbers mean, by the way, simultaneously, it was projected that we'd see 1.3 million in new first-time filings for unemployment benefits this week. So again, 11.1% unemployment, that is a lot of unemployment. We still have a long way to go. We are still in the early stages of, I think, fully assessing all the damage we inflicted upon ourselves with these lockdown policies. However, it seems difficult to dispute that uh, these are positive numbers yet again that we that indicate some movement in a positive fashion on the road to recovery. But let's get an expert opinion on that. For that, we will go to our friend Scott, the cow guy, Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks for joining us. How about that? Four point eight million jobs number. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's, the Democrats won't like to see that. Anybody that wants to stay locked down won't like to see it. It's speed expectations. We were looking for $3 million, uh, and obviously the unemployment rate at 11.1% was also better than the expected 12.3%. So that's the good news. And, you know, it took me about 25 years of my career to figure out what to trade. Do I trade what I think is going to happen or what is going to happen? You have to kind of be careful because the headline is making the, the market pretty happy. But underlying, you know, we've got some negative hourly earnings numbers. That's not good. Continuing jobless claims. Now, we're up to, you know, 19.3 million there, uh, people out of work, and we had more initial jobless claims. So we've had first-time filers of almost 50 million, just 49 million and change. You know, this is a stab wound, and we still don't know how deep it is. And, and the negative news keeps coming in. It's, like it's not a negative news train. It doesn't come that fast, right? It's like a negative news aircraft carrier. Every day we get buffeted by a wave of something that's not very good. So before everybody gets out over their skis, these are good numbers because they're much better than expected. And 4.8 million people is nothing to laugh at. You're right. 11.1% unemployment is still horrible. But nobody expected, I mean, few people expected, including cynics like myself and I think you. I wouldn't really call us cynics. I'd call us realists. But those who would view us as cynical on the speed of recovery Few people expect, expected uh, plus six million jobs in May and June. 
No, they did not. I mean, the shocker was last, the last, the last job report we had was an absolute shocker. You know, there's a term in our business called short-termism. When you get surrounded by all this negative news, you really start really uh, adding to it and getting out over your skis and, and then you get slapped in the face with something that might be more realistic. And that's what happened the last time around. And this time, not so much, right? We were on the right side of the guesses, the 3 million number. We came in at 4.8, which is still a big increase. And that is, that is fantastic. But I still say that this is going to be with us till the end of next year. I mean, this is nothing that we're going to get out of. This V-shaped recovery, I don't know where they're getting this from. And I love Larry Kudlow, but I just can't imagine what you're thinking when you, when you talk about that. Because all I have to say, look, I'm a common sensocrat, right? I grew up working on a, my, my dad's farm. You know, if it's raining out, you don't get in the tractor and go plant because it's raining. It's that simple. And so when you, they tell me about this V-shaped recovery, until we have the stadiums full, the restaurants full, retail outlets full, subways full, buses full, we're, we're not getting back to where we were. That's the bottom line. And so until that happens, we're going to have a little bit of a drag or a lot of drag on our economy. And it's just that's the bet. Which one is it? Little or a lot? Uh, President Trump did an interview with Fox Business yesterday, and he was asked about his support in principle for a phase four stimulus, another round of checks to Americans. Uh, listen to what he had to say. I want to get your comment. Another round of direct payments for individuals. Do you support that at this time? I do. I support it, but it has to be done properly. And I support actually larger numbers than the Democrats, but it's got to be done properly. Uh, we had something where they wanted, where it gave you a disincentive to work last time. And it was still money going to people and helping people, so I was all for that. But we want to create a, a very great incentive to work. So uh, we're working on that, and I'm sure we'll all come together. You want the direct payments larger or the uninsurance benefits larger? I want larger? the money getting to people to be larger so they can spend it. I want the money to get there quickly and in a non-complicated fashion. And they wanted to make it too complicated. Also, it was an incentive not to go to work. You'd make more money if you don't go to work. That's not what the country's all about. And people didn't want that. They wanted to go to work, but it didn't make sense because they make more money if they didn't. And we had some of that, and so we don't want to have that. We want to have people get out, and we want, we want to create a tremendous incentive for people to want to go back to work. On that and the uninsurance benefits, Mitch McConnell uh, yesterday signaled his support for an extension, the $600 figure. Do you agree with that number? Do you think it should be less? We're, we're getting together. We're going to meet tonight, and we're going to make a determination. But it's going to be a, a good number. It's a substantial number. People are going to be very happy. I, I, I'm a bit confused by what the position is. So... It was a mistake to pay people more to be to not work than to work. That's what the president said. Then McConnell wants to extend unemployment benefits. He's asked if the six hundred dollars is the number. And he said, we're going to get together and figure that out. So he seems to be a little bit on both sides of the issue, plus suggesting another round of stimulus checks to Americans that will be bigger than the twelve hundred dollars per person that was distributed last go around. What's your assessment of the need for Anything on the order of what uh, was discussed there? Well, I'll say I'll say the naughty thing first. You know, the best round of stimulus that we could do right now is be, would be open everything up. <laughs> I mean, and get a hold, you know get a hold of ourselves and stop the hysteria. Uh, but uh, failing that, which is un- politically unacceptable, he's in a lot of election. You know, that's why he's talking about getting these one-time payments and making them big. I don't think he'd be talking about that if there wasn't anything coming up in November. Uh, I do believe that he understands that these payments that everybody's been getting on top of their unemployment has been keeping people 
out of work. And when that stops, there's going to be an, uh, there's going to be a lot to pay there too. So I think that he's thinking of two things. Number one, I got to get reelected. I'm going to do another big stimulus. And number two is I don't know if I can afford to let these unemployment benefits run out before the election, because that is going to be a bad thing too. So as much as he probably doesn't like them and paying people not to work, and that's a problem for employers. And at the same time, giving your great grandkids money to these people right now as a one-off payment, he's probably thinking both of those in an election year. And he wouldn't, if it wasn't that. Yeah, I mean, I, I right, I, but uh, but it seems to me that you have to make a, a clear statement about paying people. You want to extend unemployment benefits? That's one thing. Again, because of the damage that was inflicted upon the American people, um, people losing jobs through no fault of their own, through the fault of their government. I would say, uh, yeah, one hundred percent. But 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 the idea of paying people more to not work than to work that has to be a marginal line. Yeah, but that's been going on. I mean, I, I remember my, with my going in the tavern with my dad, asking some guys to do some fence posts, and they said, how much you're paying? And whatever he said, I remember as a kid, them saying, well, the government pays me the same to stay home. So, I mean, that's, that's, not, a new, that's not a new problem. That's been going on for a while. So it's just a bigger problem now. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, we talked to Jovita Carranza, the uh, administrator for the Small Business Administration, on the show yesterday. And uh, it's it's rather surprising to me that there's still one hundred and thirty billion dollars left to be distributed uh, in the payroll protection program. I know that five million small businesses have accessed that program. The the first uh, tranche of money went very quickly, but the second tranche uh, is not going as quickly. And I don't think it's a bureaucracy issue. Does it that does that speak to maybe that uh, a lot of small businesses are? Uh, healthier or have are figuring out other ways to bridge this moment uh, around the country than originally anticipated? Maybe you just don't know if they all just shut shop and gave up. Maybe. Then, well, that could be the other reason. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm hearing pretty bad horror stories right now about people not even coming. Bankruptcy is one thing, right? That's, that should be people should look at that as a positive because they're just restructuring and try to carry on. But how many people just shut it up, gone, forget it, we're, you know, it's over. And I've heard restaurants, 33% now of yeah. restaurants will not reopen. So yeah. there's yeah. a lot of the numbers in there. People, you know, I'm not going to take the money because my business is over. It's actually a good point, too. I mean, thinking it through a little bit. Right. So the second tranche comes uh, four or five weeks into this. And as we know, particularly yeah. with restaurants, you don't have more than four weeks of cash, if that, on hand to survive if you're closed. Yeah, and so like show, it's like showing up to D-Day on June 10th. A quarter to one third of restaurants we we've heard from New York. <laughs> yeah. We've heard in Chicago, same thing. I mean, it's just and it's and it's just like what? yeah, you know, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, we'll, we'll you know we'll muddle through. It'll be fine. No, we're not. No, we're not going to muddle through. And the problem. And one more last thing I'll say is that you know the American psyche has been so bruised, and the media has got these people so scared that thirty three percent of Americans, even if given the all clear tomorrow, would still stay in their homes because they're afraid. So you've already gotten rid of a third of your customers just out of fear, let alone even if you were 100% open. So what these, pe- these people are getting exactly what they wanted. They've scared everybody to death, and it's going to slow the recovery, but for sure. He is Scott Shalady. Scott, the cow guy, Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks for joining us. Right. Appreciate Have it. a good holiday weekend, guys. You too. Take care. Working for a living. Working. Working for a living. Working for a living. Living and a working. I'm taking what they're giving because I'm working for a living. danprofshow.com
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, our colleague in Salem World, Sean Hannity, who obviously is also in Fox World, uh, had a uh, really emotional, uh, poignant interview yesterday with Horace Lorenzo Anderson. He is the father of a 19-year-old who was murdered in Seattle's Chaz slash Chop nation that was dismantled yesterday. The uh, summer of love being shortened by Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, but not before Horace Lorenzo Anderson's 19-year-old son was murdered inside that zone. And if that's not bad enough, what's worse is the uh, treatment that Mr. Anderson received from local authorities to the extent there are any there. Uh, Listen. A blur. Yeah, I don't even, I'm numb. I'm still numb today. I got to bury my son tomorrow, you know, and... It's just been a lot going on, and my whole thing is my whole life is, man, this is incredible. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I, I, still this day, I, it's been almost two weeks. I haven't heard from nobody. Has yeah. nobody called? They still ain't, ain't nobody called me or tried to find me. And his ID is my ID, so his number is my number. So they can. it's easy to come for a you know, detective say, hey, excuse me, knock on my door. Excuse me, let me tell you what happened about your about son. Your or son. let me. I don't know nothing. I had to find my son. They wouldn't even let me see my son that night. It took me a whole week before I can see my son. Uh, did you catch that? It took me a week to see my son after I'm informed that he's dead. And no one from the city or from the uh, formerly uh, independent nation, the failed nation of Chaz Chop, has told Mr. Anderson anything. I went to the hospital and they said that they we couldn't see him. They just said we couldn't see him. There was now, mine. You know, when I go there, I'm going there. I'm looking for a detective. Somebody tell me something, something. But when I get there, there's nobody. I mean, the hospital is blank. There's it's it's silence. I'm going like, what's going on? It's, it, you know. So I go ask the lady, and she tells me, hold on. So I wait. They, I couldn't go in, so I'm waiting for a long time. And I finally, she tells me to come in, and then she, the doctor comes, tells me only only thing he tells me is my son's deceased. I'm like, well, can I see him? Is it is it my son? Because you got to realize, you know, at this time I'm going like, is it really my son? You know, I want to know, is it my son? Mm-hmm. You know, because this could be somebody else's child. You know, but you know, you know, I'm in my head. I'm going like, yeah, it's mine, because everybody's saying this, but. In my heart, I'm going like, you know, I just need, I, I, I need to see him for, you know, I need to see him one time. Just so, just to make, so I can see him. I couldn't see him that day. You can understand why he is so distraught and it, not just because of the death of his son, but because of the way he's treated by the authorities that are supposed to represent him. This speaks again to what we've discussed all week. The idea that some people in this country are neglected and undefended by their duly sworn elected officials, neglected and undefended. While so many of those duly sworn elected officials and other champagne socialists that uh, turn a blind eye if they're not outright cheerleading the mobsters, the Marxist mobsters on the streets from the safe distance of their enclaves. Uh, Listen to what Mr. Anderson says about essentially saying about this uh, autonomous zone that was allowed to exist because Seattle 
civilian political authorities decided to abdicate any commitment to the rule of law, any belief in the morality of the position that they are responsible to maintain law and order, that they should not surrender a police precinct to the mob, for goodness sakes. Now listen to my words. Listen to Mr. Anderson's emotion. Man, these are, these are kids, man. They should have been stopped this a long time ago. It's starting to get, excuse me, but it's getting to the point. You know where, you know it's getting. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm just really. I'm so sorry, Mr. Anderson. What you Somebody been didn't ask for this. And they need to come talk to me and somebody need to come tell me something because I still don't know nothing. And somebody need to come to my house and knock on my door and tell me something. That, you know, I don't know nothing. All I know is my son, was, he got killed up there and he's just a, he's just a 19-year-old. No, that's Horace Lorenzo Anderson. That's my son, you know, and I loved him. And that was my son. <laughs> so... Who will be held responsible for Horace Lorenzo Anderson's killing? Politically and legally. Who's it going to be? Anybody? How much coverage is that going to get? Good on Sean Hannity for getting Mr. Anderson on the show and uh, and a, a friend and I guess um, I, I, a friend of his, I think, that runs a nonprofit was the friend that was with him. But uh, what about the amplification of this story? Is it relevant? I think so, as lawlessness persists. You know, there's another autonomous zone. I think I mentioned it yesterday. There's a Chaz in New York now. It was the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone initially in Seattle. It's the City Hall Autonomous Zone in New York City. And uh, listen to what uh, some of the um, enlightened denizens of Chaz NYC have to say to the police, New York uh, Police Department uh, officers that are, you know, assembled as they mock and protest the police. I can't believe y'all get paid to sit there like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is beautiful. <laughs> wow. You guys go to clown college for like 26 weeks for those stupid scholar there, but uh, that individual referring to and pointing at a black New York City police officer, you're the black Judas, you're a traitor to your race, uh, while also just, you know, generally denigrating the cops that were assembled just watching, you know, manning a line uh, as, you know, undereducated. They're not smart. 
like uh, that individual. By the way, that one of the individuals you heard there, the one that was saying black Judas, traitor, your race, was a black gender confused individual who was prancing around in heels without a shirt on while telling cops how dumb they are and undereducated. Uh, and it gets worse from there. It will if New York City does what Seattle did, which is to abdicate in order to appease the mob. That's when people get hurt. Or, in the case of Horace Lorenzo Anderson, murder. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that Cubs pitching coach Tommy Hadovy, uh has recovered from his COVID-19 infection. But uh, his commentary on it to a local news station in Chicago was really quite something. First, listen to the commentary, and then I'll give you a little bit of the color. Tommy Hadovy. Sorry, give me a sec. It's still kind of uh, raw in the fact that we we just got through it and to, like, relive it. Um, yeah. Obviously, it affected us. If we take the necessary steps, which I know MLB is, I know our organization is doing a fantastic job of, of setting up protocols, you know, give us the best chance to be successful in what we want to do. I, I do still believe, like, for the society and for people, you know, having sports, having baseball, just having them give hope to, you know, what we've all been dealing with, I, I do think it's important. Uh-huh. Hadavi's wife and children did not get sick, thankfully. He um, fell ill following a nasal test, isolated in a spare bedroom in his home with symptoms that at one point forced him to spend part of one day at the hospital. And that's his reaction weeks later now recalling it. Uh-huh. This is a 38-year-old former professional athlete. And, I, I, of course, he's interested in, in his profession resuming some sort of normalcy, certainly resuming play. I wonder what he would say, given how emotional he got with respect to those things that do not directly affect him. Those sorts of stories, and uh, I'm not necessarily blaming the news media in this case because um, uh, he reacted how he reacted in recalling his his illness. But, I mean, they completely distort the extent and the severity of the virus, generally speaking. Uh, yes, younger people have gotten very ill and uh, will have and have suffered uh, lung damage that will persist for some extended period of time, perhaps ever. It's serious. Young people have died. Serious. But these cases that are used to, to sensationalize the virus are also seriously misleading. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Ovi Groy. He's the co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center and editor for Forbes Opinion. And uh, he has uh, penned a missive on the truth of what's going on right now with COVID as uh, the uh, media breathlessly reports case spikes. Uh, The increase in cases is real. Increase in hospitalizations some places is real. And so is the continuing decline in the number of deaths, isn't it, Ovik? Good to be with you. There's been so much sensationalism in general about this issue. And I get it. You know, uh, the media needs clicks and the media is going to 
sensationalized things. And, and people are obviously scared and genuinely scared. And, and, and even journalists are genuinely scared. So every scary uh, part of the story is amplified. And in the case of rising cases, it's a concerning issue, right? We don't want people to be infected with COVID if they can help it. But it is uh, important context that by far the majority of people who are getting infected in these recent uh, rises in cases in places like Texas and Florida are younger people, people in their 20s and 30s. And what we know from the data, especially from Florida, is that younger people are at much lower risk of being hospitalized for COVID-19. And even if they do get hospitalized, they're at much lower risk of dying from COVID-19. And just to, to put some numbers around that for people who care, if you're over 75 and you get hospitalized with COVID-19, there's actually a 60% chance that you will die. So that's very serious. On the other hand, if you're in your 20s and you get hospitalized with COVID, the chance that you die is 2%. And so it really matters when people talk about the rise in cases of COVID, what is the age bracket of those cases? If it's a relatively younger crowd, then that's less worrisome. And if it's an older crowd, it's very worrisome. And that's also based on the confirmed cases, the reported cases. That's not based on the CDC's projection that, no, we don't really have two and a half million cases. We believe we have more like 22 million cases, 22 million infections. Yeah, and listen, I mean, you know, cases is an imprecise measure on a lot of uh, a lot of fronts. I'm sure you've spoken with your listeners before about how, you know, as we test more people, and we are in the United States now testing more people per capita than any other country in the world, as we test more people, more cases are going to pop up of people who are not having any symptoms, not having any health issues, but happen to have uh, had infection at one point or another. So uh, you should see a rise, even if you take that into account, even if you take into account the rise of testing, we're seeing a rise in cases. Now, part of that's because we're testing the most at-risk populations. We're testing people in hospitals. We're testing people in nursing homes. So we should see a rise in cases. And again, the key thing is where the case is coming from. So, so the, the part of this that's a genuine outbreak of, of the virus spreading is it appears there are a lot of 20-somethings who are going to bars and infecting yeah. each other. And, and I, I want to I pick up right there because uh, it's interesting, even uh, some on the left that are otherwise sympathetic to general lockdowns, like German Lopez over at Vox.com argues in a recent piece, close the bars, reopen the schools. We'll uh, pick it up there with Ovi Gray, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Right up. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Ovi Groy. He's the co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's also senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center and the editor of Forbes Opinion. He's a busy guy. And Ovi, before the break, we were talking about um, transmission among young people at bars. And uh, now you yeah. see uh, Arizona Governor Ducey and Gavin Newsom and DeSantis in Florida too, Abbott in Texas, pressing the pause button, moving to close down bars for now and so forth. And this is all in the context of, uh, OK, what are we going to do with school in two months, too? And, and that that debate that spilled over from congressional testimony from Fauci in particular in an exchange with Rand Paul the other day earlier this week. German Lopez in Vox.com, which I mentioned before the break. Now, this is a man of the left, argues close the bars, reopen the schools. 
Do you agree with what the governors in Florida, Texas, Arizona are doing right now? Also, do you agree with those sort of to some extent across the spectrum based on data, not just in this country, but also internationally that suggests we should reopen the schools and students should be physically present in K through 12 school systems come the fall? Absolutely. And that's what Texas and Florida are doing. They've closed the bars, but they are reopening schools. Schools are open. I have two toddlers and they are in preschool right now. And I'm grateful for that for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, right. But I do need to be productive sometimes without them around, let alone what their, edu- their own educational opportunities are, which are important, uh, and particularly for lower-income kids, by the way. Like upper-income people, you know, we can manage to find resources for our children to, get, to keep them educated while they're out of school. If you're a low-income child, or particularly if you're a child of a single parent who has to work, it's a lot harder. And so, the you know, people are talking a lot about racial disparities right now. You want to know the best way to expand racial disparities? Keep poor minority children out of school. Yeah. This has been a huge problem. And the biggest antagonists to reopening schools, by the way, aren't parents. Unions. It's teachers' unions. Yeah. Who are basically wanting to get paid without actually showing up for work. And look, I totally get the point about we want to make sure schools are safe and we want those teachers to operate in a safe environment. That's very important. But we know that kids are not infecting their teachers. If anything, it's the other way around. The adults are infecting the children, but children are not, it's it's unusual. Because normally we think of children as these Petri dishes that infect everybody, right? But with COVID, it's different. COVID is a different kind of virus. Kids who have COVID don't seem to infect adults. They don't even infect their own parents. We have a lot of reason to believe uh, that we can safely reopen schools, and we need to if we want to reduce those disparities that everyone's talking about today. Do you worry that we're too early? You know, some epidemiologists, the experts have said, you know, we're still very early in this virus. There's still a lot we don't know. And so, you know, that's usually the predicate to say out of an abundance of caution. And that's usually the predicate to say we should uh, really restrict people's activities, their ability to be in places where there are other people congregating and so forth, even outside. There definitely are things we don't know about COVID, and we need to be very evidence-driven in, in how we do things. But when it comes to children and their infectivity of adults, we actually have a, quite a bit of evidence. There was a study that was done in Iceland where they looked at literally the entire population of Iceland, and they could not identify a single case. I think now they found like three or four cases total in the entire country of people uh, where the children infected the adults. It's incredibly rare, and, 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 there's, and, and there's theoretical reasons for that, which is to say we know that the virus doesn't appear to be lethal in kids by and large. It's like a one in a million or one in two million chance. And it may be that just kids, because their bodies aren't fully formed, and that's why the virus isn't as infective in kids. So as a result, if the, if the virus is not overwhelming your system because you don't have a lot of copies of that virus replicating in your body, you're just not going to have a lot of virus around to go infect other people with. So all that to say, we have a lot of evidence around school reopening that's compelling. And we also, by the way, Dan, have a lot of evidence around the tragedy in nursing homes where yes. outside of New York State, half of the country's deaths from COVID-19 are happening in nursing homes. And you know what percentage of the population of the United States lives in nursing homes? 0.6%. Mm-hmm. So if we really want to be focused on the problem and in an evidence and science driven way, that's what we ought to be focusing on. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's remarkable, actually, how underreported that dramatic statistic is, what, what that even more dramatically represents in terms of the loss of life and the concentration of the lost lives. And and they're just the, the lack of interest for that catastrophic decision 
is sort of remarkable to me because you would think you'd want to highlight it so that no governor does that the next go around. Exactly. But, you know, uh, that's where the politics of all this comes into play, right? If you're a Democrat, uh, you want to blame Trump for everything. You want to say it's all Trump's fault. You don't want to take responsibility, particularly in Andrew Cuomo, where, you know, look, half the deaths in the country from COVID have happened in the tri-state area around New York City. Cuomo doesn't want to own up to that, let alone what he did to force nursing homes to accept infected patients with COVID from hospitals. He doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to talk about Trump. So, He's going to do that and, 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 and others will join in. What do you think Trump should be messaging right now? How should he be trying to thread the needle on this topic? He gave an interview to, to Fox Business uh, yesterday and he you know, talked about I wear masks and I'm all in for masks and it's sort of virtue signaling along with everybody else. But it seems to me his statement uh, and the statement coming from the White House needs to be more layered than just uh, going, you know, wherever sort of 50 percent plus of the population is on any aspect of this disease. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot to criticize about the president's, what you might call at times, inconsistent commentary about about COVID-19. And I share those concerns. I will say that there are some good things that have happened along the way as well. There have been definitely a lot of missteps. You know, the, the inability of the CDC and the FDA because of the bureaucracies to get the testing up and running early on could have made a huge difference. On the flip side, once uh, the pandemic got really serious, the administration worked day and night to acquire more testing capacity in the U.S., more masks, more ventilators. There was a great article by Rich Lowry of National Review that your readers should read about this topic, or your listeners should read about this topic, that really goes into all the behind the scenes stuff that the administration did to get those testing, uh, that, that testing capacity up. And we're not where we need to be, but we're doing better than every other country in the world. And a big part of why is, is uh, enormous efforts from the administration. So Trump himself, I think, as a, as a front man, has had a lot of issues uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of his, the way he's talked about this. But the administration itself, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that's maybe less in the headlines, there's been actually a lot of uh, really important achievements and accomplishments. When we come back with Ovik Roy, I want to uh, pick up on the issue of testing, specifically with regard to random sample antibody testing and how important that is and where we stand with it. More with Ovik Roy when we return. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Ovi Gori, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And Ovi, do you find it curious at all? We still haven't gotten to the stage where we're doing substantial random sample antibody testing to try and get a a handle on the percentage of the population that has been infected to do modeling that's that is based on real human data in real communities that is uh, demographically representative well some people are doing that so there's a a group out of stanford in california that has been doing that kind of work Um, and frankly they've been criticized for their work not because their work is actually bad but because it didn't feed into the narrative that we're all going to die. Right. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that happened early on, actually, and, and that work continues. 
Um, in terms of if you're if you're if you're asking like why can't we do that on a national scale, uh, we just don't have we still don't have enough tests apparently to do that, and and particularly in terms of accurate high quality tests, there, you know different tests have different levels of accuracy. So like for example, I had I had a situation recently where I had to get tested because uh, we had a uh, close encounter with someone who turned out to get to have COVID, mm -hmm. and um, it was a total bureaucratic nightmare to get tested, even though the tests are actually available in Texas, because you have to still you still have to fill out this form where you convince everyone that you you know you're that, symptomatic that you have a reason to get the test. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, it, it's become this whole bureaucratic thing. So that's still frustrating. I'm sure a lot of people in places like Chicago are still frustrated by that, uh, uh, and and we got to get better at that. But we but the scale of testing is increasing. I, I think really the issue is. If you really want to solve COVID in the near term, people just have to have that personal responsibility. Wear a mask when you're in close quarters with other people. Try to spend most of your time outdoors in, in terms of social encounters and things like that. Um, you know, <laughs> distance, uh, you know, work from home if you can. Uh, but if you have an office and, and other people aren't around, that's fine. Like prudent, it's just like driving. You know, there was a great op-ed a, a, a couple months back in the New York Sun about the analogy really we need to use here is car accidents. There are about 35,000 people who die every year from car accidents in the United States. But our response to that is not to shut down the roads, right? It's to have regulations. It's to have driver's license. It's to have DUI. It's to have speed limits. It's to have traffic laws, right? We have a whole web and an ecosystem of the rules that go into whether or not you can operate a car safely and where you can drive it. And that's a great analogy for where we need to get with COVID. We need to get to a point where people understand their own responsibility and their own role in not infecting others. This is where the mask thing really comes into play, I think. You know, is, is it's important for people to realize, yes, masks are inconvenient and they're annoying, but when someone asks you to put on a mask, they're not trying to impose on your liberty. They're trying to protect their own liberty to not get infected if you've got the virus. So uh, that, that's an important message, I think, for, for people to, to appreciate. He is Ovik Roy, co-founder and president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, senior advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center and editor of Forbes Opinion. Ovik, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts and program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Um, we, sometimes we like to, you know, stretch our, out a little bit and show our range, you know, dare to uh, move towards uh, the, uh, the edges. And uh, this may be one such example. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I have read an interview that she gave to the Daily Beast, and I'm talking about Brandy Love who is a 14-time uh, AVN and XBiz-nominated adult entertainer. I don't know what those organizations are, but okay. And she's a contributor to The Federalist, uh, like Ben Domenici's publication. And she's a Trump supporter. And uh, much like the rest of Hollywood, that is a rarity in uh, her 
chosen business. Brandy Love, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. And um, so uh, why are you a Trump supporter and, and how is that received in your circles? <laughs> well, that is a very interesting two-part question. Why, why am I a Trump supporter? He puts America first. Conservative policies have historically made our country stronger, safer, puts good working people, hardworking people back to work, cuts our taxes. If nothing else in this interview, the three of us can agree upon, it's probably that, that the conservative values and conservative policies keep this country strong, prosperous, and safe. As far as the question about being a conservative in the adult entertainment, well, being a conservative is easy in the entertainment industry. However, being a vocal conservative is extremely challenging. I don't know that you would have, but if any of you have seen my Twitter feed, you'd see how the radical socialists treat me. This year alone, I've had to file three police reports, death threats, threats of rape. I'm asked to kill myself every day from these so-called tolerant, kind-hearted progressives. Aside from a handful who are like me, the performers haven't been much better. In some cases, they're honestly worse. Unfortunate for me is that my Twitter feed is full of people saying it's cancel culture. They're trying to get me out of the industry, saying I don't deserve to work in the industry, that nobody should hire me. And if they do, that some performers, not all, but some performers are refusing to work with me, which, quite frankly, good for me because it leaves the, um, the best of the best to work with. The unfortunate part of being who I am in the industry that I am is that a segment of the far right also comes after me. They resort to challenging my faith in Christ. They call me a harlot and and slut shame. And way back in the beginning, they challenged my fitness as a mother. But each and every time I stand my ground for the same reason you guys do. I mean, but Brandy, you have to understand, I mean, you sound intelligent and and I assume you are. You understand, of (laughs) course, that what you do professionally runs afoul of Christian teaching. So you understand why there's disagreement. I've been married for 25 years happily. Both my husband and I come from families of multiple divorces. So it's a little bit of a thing to have people who have far less happy marriages and well-adjusted children to judge me for my sex life when they can't keep their stuff together. Well, no, I, I, I understand, but, but this is not a contest. This is just to say, you know, here's the standard set forth, and then, you know, how does everybody measure up to that standard? I mean, but we understand what the standard is. I mean, you, you understand why there would be genuine, not hateful, but genuine disagreement about what you do versus what somebody says their faith is and their, uh, their effort to abide their faith. That, that's all. In terms of, say, what they say, is that, so, is that something that's right or is that something that's wrong? You can understand why devouted Christians, not far right, but just devouted Christians would say, that's not something that I think is right or that's not something I would want my daughter to do or something, something like that. Well, certainly. And again, opinions go back to we all have them. I don't think our opinions should be stifled or, or shut down. Hatred spread on the other side. is that's, that's, For me, that's a very different stance. And as far as the Christian aspect, what I would like to challenge back would be if we've all read our Bibles and understand that everybody's past is different and unique, just like us, the individual, and no one person should tell another person what should make them happy. God does. He's the one who created us. And because you don't understand my path, which I believe is 100% right where I'm supposed to be, mm-hmm. I, I just don't understand why people would judge that. It's not for them to judge, nor would I judge what, their what, path. 
I mean, just I, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I mean, you won't, <laughs> we, 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 we understand that um, judge not, yes, he be judged is not an admonition against judgment. It is to say, don't be a hypocrite. In other words, don't uh, accuse somebody of something that you yourself are doing. And so that's fair. But in terms of like the idea where you shouldn't judge human conduct, conduct, not the person as a as a child of God, but the conduct, you can understand where there would be disagreement. And it doesn't it doesn't at all have to come from a place of hating anybody. I couldn't agree with you more. And if that were the case. I would never have issue with the far right, and I wish they didn't with me. If we're supposed to love one another, why don't we just do that a little bit more? As long as what we're doing are within the confines of the law of our country, you know, let's let's let the law be the law and let's let one another live within it. You can disagree, like we just said. You can disagree, but to try to shame to the point of canceling, that's a whole other story. Well, it's interesting because, uh, right, I mean, this is one of those issues that where there's some ideological crossover. I mean, you have uh, self-identified leftist feminists who are opposed to what you do uh, for different reasons, but still opposed, just as you do Christian conservatives. That's interesting you brought that up about the, the feminists. It's fascinating that we're calling for quality across the board and women, pro-women, and they should be in charge and love it or hate it. The adult industry provides one of the strongest financial positions a woman can hold in total control of what she does and doesn't do and puts more money in the bank than any profession. And yet the feminists still hate that when a woman is in complete control. So in many cases, there's so much hypocrisy regarding those things that I I sometimes try to just shut off the noise, put my head down and do what I do and, and continue to love what I do. Because it's for me and it's for the fans. Now, Honestly, nobody else. Are you are you active or getting more active in politics? Are, are you planning on participating in the the uh, election in a, in a in a campaign way this cycle? Well, no, wouldn't that be interesting? Um, <laughs> maybe may, I, I maybe like you you uh, you debate Stormy Daniels. You know, you you Trump side and Biden side. Well, you know, <laughs> my platform will always and forever be holding the Constitution of the United States where it belongs. I would fight to the end to preserve the things that this country was founded on. And as we're seeing right now, I I don't even know what to say. I was born here. I've lived here my whole life. I have traveled the world and I will always come back home to see what the worst part is that some of them are Americans, born and raised here, Americans that hate our country. It is domestic terrorism happening and it's, it's just shredding the very fabric that makes this country so amazing and incredible. Um, it, it, we, as a nation, those who are God-fearing, God-loving people who love this country, need to stand up and do something and do something now. And, and certainly in four months, I will be at the voting ballot, and I will be doing everything in my power. You guys, you know, again, my Twitter is my platform. My Instagram is my platform. People certainly know where I stand. Um, You have followers, a lot more followers than I do. I wonder why. Um, Well, maybe I can help you. Yeah, maybe maybe you can. (laughs) Although there are are limits to what I'm willing to do for the help, but yeah. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. (laughs) This is a a day I never thought would happen. That's for sure. What state do you you live in, Brandy? I'm in North Carolina. Oh, swing state. Oh, all yeah, right. Yeah. We may need you to to marshal uh, your uh, uh, fans 
uh, come uh, November 3rd. So, okay. Well, uh, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, over the last couple of months of of seeing what's been going on, um, it was a little scary at first coming out so strong in my stance to to the things that I believe in. Um, However, there was about a 24-hour dip and a concern in my life about, wow, things changed so quickly. Maybe I am not going to be able to continue in my career because it got so nasty so fast. Or Unfortunately, our industry does that to itself. And then this huge rise of conservative fans. Uh, you know, I back the blue. I am pro-military. I'm pro-A1 and A2. And and I felt like it gives me goosebumps. And it might sound silly to you guys, but all at once, this rush of love and support. Because it's like it's like uh, adult, entertainment, adult entertainment for patriots. And if that's where I get to stand in this world, it would make me so happy. Because the people following me now are of like mind. We enjoy our drink. We enjoy our sex. We enjoy our constitution. And there's a lot no more particular of order. In no particular order. Um, we, we all have our own order. We all have our, or, our own uh, order. Bra- <laughs> Brandy Love, 14-time AVN and XBiz-nominated adult entertainer, contributor now to The Federalist at Federalist.com. Brandy, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. Anytime. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Have a good four. No, no, no. Don't pass me over. No, no, no. Don't pass me by. I can see good things for you. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Rothrock and Whitlock. Who should we tackle first? Father Theodore Rothrock and... Carmel, Indiana, or Jason Whitlock over at Outkick.com. Let's start with Whitlock. Uh, Jason Whitlock, longtime sports writer. Uh, Always enjoy his stuff. We've talked about him on the show before. He uh, has a piece about uh, Terry Crews, you know, the former uh, NFL player, Oakland Raider, turned uh, actor. He's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's actually very funny, pretty good comedic actor. Well, uh, Terry Crews is also a Christian, and he got in trouble on Twitter for being a Christian. <laughs> and Jason Whitlock has a really good contextual piece on that. Uh, here's the offending tweet from Terry Crews. If you're a child of God, you are my brother and sister. I have family of every race, creed, and ideology. We must ensure hashtag Black Lives Matter doesn't morph into hashtag Black Lives Better. Uh, As Whitlock writes, that tweet sparked the kind of massive blacklash we've come to expect when any influencer dares to deviate from the pre-approved racial narrative popularized via social media. Uh, Here's how uh, Whitlock describes the, uh, you know, thou shall not pass warning that should be posted. Do not under any circumstance question the agenda, direction or ramifications of the Black Lives Matter movement. If you have ever wondered whether BLM is consistent with the values taught in your church, do not raise those questions or concerns publicly. If you see a guilt ridden white person kneeling in front and asking a black person for forgiveness as if the black person embodied God, do not question either person's sanity or the sacrilegious messaging. You will be race shamed. Yeah, that's the that's the warning. Uh, the mob is implicitly delivering 
when it uh, descends on Terry Crews. And interestingly, and I didn't know this, Terry Crews and Jason Whitlock played football at the same time in the MAC. Terry Crews uh, was at Western Michigan, and Whitlock was at Ball State. Uh, he uh, says of Cruz, you know, following Cruz's career, somebody he played against, competed against, two black kids from the Midwest that use their college football careers as springboards to bigger and better things. Right, Whitlock into sports writing and obviously Terry Cruz into acting after pro football career. Uh, Whitlock's message. Social media, Twitter in particular, is hostile to Christian values. Twitter is the most secular place on earth. That's why it's the preferred platform of Black Lives Matter a movement founded by women trained in Marxist ideology. All right. Remember that. Uh, And and he notes Karl Marx's political ideology was anti-religious. Yes. Uh, Religion, the opiate of the masses. Does that ring familiar? Mm -hmm. And uh, Whitlock talks about how, you know, his, uh, he's always tried to avoid any, you know, political handle writing, I've rejected politics and a political identity. As I've written previously, my worldview is driven by my religious faith and American patriotism. But there's a tax for that. Earlier in the week, we heard from Brian Gumbel talking about the black tax. You know, the, the, uh, uh, what uh, black Americans have to endure in terms of uh, unspoken skepticism about their accomplishments, abilities, and the like. Well, Jason Whitlock here talking about uh, being there being a tax for being a black American and having your worldview driven by your faith and patriotism. He writes, Twitter is the IRS for Christians. Terry Crews just received another IRS notification of audit and tax penalty. His statement of brotherhood and sisterhood with all of God's children, regardless of their race, creed and ideology, placed him in the Twitter crosshairs. If your worldview is driven by your faith and a higher power and you have the courage to publicly express that worldview, social media will come for you. That's why the fraudulent Black Lives Matter narrative is rarely challenged. Jason Whitlock. Well, well, now we move to Father Rothrock. Keeping in mind Jason Whitlock's observations because they're applicable. The church. Even the church cannot stand up to the mob, the Marxist mob on social media and in the streets. Father, Father Theodore Rothrock, suspended by St. Elizabeth Seton Catholic Church, suspended by the bishop, the archdiocese, you know, the uh, dioceses, suspended after his condemnation of Black Lives Matter. And it wasn't limited to that. In the uh, bulletin, Church Bulletin, Father Rothrock wrote, Despots and tyrants have always employed accusation and distortion to achieve all manner of mischief in an effort to shape and mold public opinion. The brutal, bur- the brutal murder of a black man in police custody has sparked a landslide of reaction to the alleged systemic racism in, Amer- in America. We are told that the scars of race relations in this country are really unhealed wounds that continue to fester and putrefy. Amputation is required. He asks, would men like Frederick Douglass and Reverend King, both men of deep faith, be throwing bombs or even marching in the streets? Would they be pleased with the murder rates in our cities or the destruction of our families by the welfare state? Would they see a value in the obliteration of our history to rewrite a future without the experience and struggles of the past? Would we tear down their monuments? Who are the real racists and purveyors 
of hate, asks Father Rothrock. You shall know them by their works. The only lives that matter are their own, and the only power they seek is their own. They are wolves in wolves' clothing, masked thieves and bandits, seeking only to devour the life of the poor and profit from the fear of others. They are maggots and parasites at best, feeding off the isolation of addiction and broken families and offering to replace any current frustration and anxiety with more misery and greater resentment. We must stand in solidarity with our brethren across the world to oppose this malevolent force. Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and the other nefarious acolytes of their persuasion are not the friends or allies we have been led to believe. They are serpents in the garden, seeking only to uproot and replant a new species of human made in the likeness of men and not in the image of God. Their poison, more toxic than any pandemic we have endured. This week, Father Rothrock was compelled to issue an apology, the sort of, you know, if anybody was offended, I'm sorry, non-apology apology. And uh, subsequently, a day later, uh, he was removed by Bishop Timothy Doherty, suspended from public ministry, effective Wednesday. If you want to contact Bishop Doherty on behalf of Father Rothrock, 765-742-0275. 765-742-0275. Apparently, there's a tax to pay uh, in the Catholic Church as well as a tax to pay as a black Christian, as uh, Jason Whitlock wrote about with respect to his buddy and the actor Terry Crews. Uh, the apology is, or the, the, the need for an apology, is there something inconsistent with the catechism that Father Rothrock offered? Can we not speak in plain words as Catholics or Christians in this country anymore? Uh, as you heard from Jason Whitlock, Black Lives Matter, this isn't about race, it's about ideology. They're Marxists. They call for the destruction of the nuclear family. It's on their website. And yet uh, Terry Crews is uh, race-shamed, blacklash, as Whitlock terms it. And a Catholic priest in Carmel, Indiana, is suspended? That's where we are, folks. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, a uh, good piece in Colette.com that uh, talks about the hypocrisy on college campuses when it comes to male-female interactions, when it comes to sex and the students on campus. And uh, on the one hand, you have the libertine sex weeks and all of the other debauchery that's encouraged on college campuses by the administration, certainly tolerated, if not encouraged. And on the other hand, you have those same administrators going, getting very puritanical when it comes to actual male-female relations when any allegation of untoward behavior is made. Just the allegation is enough for a conviction and, uh, and uh, an assault on somebody's reputation, you know, a permanent part of their record, as it were. Uh, High-profile cases that we've talked about in this show that you know – 
the uh, phony rape charges against the UVA student that was run in Rolling Stone that resulted in a successful libel suit against Rolling Stone, the uh, mattress girl case in the Ivy League. And this was the impetus for Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos to put forward new guidance to American colleges and universities regarding respect for the norms of due process on a college campus. You would think in an, insti- in an institution of higher learning that and, and due process being so such a core part of our legal system in terms of fairness that it would be advanced in a normative way on college campus with respect to dispute resolution. And, of course, if you thought that up until Betsy DeVos, you'd be wrong. And uh, this brings us to the authors of this piece I referenced at Quillette, Samantha Harris, who's a senior fellow at uh, FIRE and an attorney who represents students and faculty, and Michael Thad Allen, who represents student and faculty in employment disputes and campus misconduct proceedings as the principal of Allen Law, LLC. He's also the author of The Business of Genocide. Samantha Harris, Michael Thad Allen, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. So um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we start, yeah, just maybe your perspective as practitioners in this space uh, and where we were uh, before the new due process guidelines issued by Betsy DeVos and, and where you think we're going on a college campus after that guidance. Samantha, you want to take that um, or do you want me to? Sure, I can take it. I mean, I think, you know, we haven't seen a lot of changes adopted yet. Um, by universities in response to the new regulations schools have until uh, August 14th to comply. Um, You know, I think the real issue is that to change the way things are on campus, we're going to need to change both, you know, the way these cases are handled, which these regulations go a long way towards doing, and which there's also been recently a number of, of good court decisions about the rights that students should have in campus disciplinary proceedings. So we do need to make these procedures more fair, but we also need to change a culture on campus that, you know, gives students messages around sex that are really just sort of conflicted and incoherent. Um, and, you know, as, as practitioners, what Mike and I have seen is that this messaging is harmful really to both men and women, because as you pointed out, you know, the consequences to the, the, the accused students are very severe. You know, I mean, if you're found responsible for sexual misconduct in cam- on campus, which is often, as you say, done without any sort of meaningful procedures, sometimes even without a hearing or an opportunity to confront your accuser, uh, you know, it becomes almost impossible to get into another school. Um, people lose job offers. They suffer serious mental health consequences. So we know that. Uh, but what we also see in our practice is that you know, something really harmful is happening to women because the way that colleges uh, define what it means to consent to sex on campus is, uh, is we feel really disempowering to women. It really sort of robs them of their agency. And as you say, it sort of imposes these sort of puritanical neo-Victorian norms um, on campus in which women are viewed as these sort of fragile, helpless creatures as opposed to sort of full equals with agency and the ability to make choices. Uh, and we think that, you know, in addition to the, the very sort of obvious harms that are done to the wrongly accused, that this is really harmful um, to, to college women as well. And that's something we're really taking a close look at. 
Uh, when we come back uh, with Samantha Harris and Michael Thad Allen, I want to pick up this discussion and, and then talk about what else needs to be done to change culture on campus. Is it even possible, given the ideological disposition of those in charge in most colleges? Samantha Harris, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and an attorney. Michael Thad Allen, uh, an attorney and principal of Allen All LLC. We'll be back with more right after this. Mama, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. Uh, We're talking to two attorneys who represent students and faculty in employment disputes and campus misconduct proceedings. Samantha Harris is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Michael Thad Allen is uh, principal of Allen Law LLC and the author of The Business of Genocide. And before the break, we were talking about um, the new rules Betsy DeVos promulgated, and it, it begins to perhaps drive a culture change or at least force colleges and universities to confront uh, the conduct that they allow and the approach they take to dispute resolution on campus. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and I, this is uh, you're talking to somebody who uh, is a graduate of Sex Toy University in Evanston, Illinois. So I know all about the mixed messages that are being sent. Uh, but uh, but Michael Thad Allen, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, it's even possible. I mean, is the response from most uh, administrations, university administrations going to be to work around the guidance issued by DeVos's Department of Education, or is do you get the sense that there's any real sort of reflection on what has been going on in college campuses and, and maybe what needs to change? I, I think you're going to see many different universities taking different approaches. We already know some are already implementing the new regulations. And they're, you know, to your point earlier, they're not just guidance, they're regulations that were promulgated under the notice and comment rulemaking procedures that are required to implement regulations. So they have the force of law, unlike previous guidance, which was just sort of could also be thought of as suggestions of things you ought to do, but don't have the force of law. These are going to be really binding on the universities, but I would expect many universities to resist it tooth and nail. And we've seen that they resisted even the um, the process tooth and nail. There's one other thing I'd say about that. You know, the regulations are are um, pretty comprehensive. Part of them imposes new obligations on universities, such as instituting cross-examination through an advisor, to an advisor to protect uh, the victims from being confronted with someone who is alleged to be a perpetrator. No one wants a situation where they're sitting right across from each other uh, having a kind of um, verbal slugfest. So the advisor is interposed. That's going to be a big change to university processes. On the other hand, there are many deregulatory impulses in the new regulations, for instance, telling schools they don't have to enforce issues of sexual misconduct when they take place overseas or in in, or in contexts where they're not connected to the university say over the summer off campus but universities are also resisting that so i think 
one thing you see, and to my mind, is probably novel. I, I don't know of any other context in which an industry has opposed its own deregulation, and that's some indication of, I think, the resistance that we're going to see on on campuses at all levels, from administration to faculty and also students. Well, with respect to these uh, accusations of sexual misconduct, I mean, in most cases, you're talking about crimes. Why should uh, alleged crimes? Why should the university be involved in it at all? Why isn't this uh, turned over to the police and let the police handle it? Why are they adjudicating these cases even as as a, uh, as, a as a disciplinary matter on campus? Well, I would say that that's not unusual for any civil institutions. There are many things that are criminal, but also in, in certain forms uh, create liability for civil infractions, and that's true of. Title VII, for instance, in which uh, sexual harassment is illegal in the workplace. Now, sexual harassment can include everything from true crimes that should indeed be turned over to law enforcement, as you say, but also things that aren't punishable at law, but are punishable as part of the civil justice system. Someone can be liable, for instance, to pay damages and so forth. Uh, so that's not that to me, that's not unusual that a university would get involved in regulating student life. And, you know, part of our article was that students have had their lives regulated by university administrators, so far as we know, as, as long as there have been universities. Uh, but it has kind of ebbed and flowed as students have either resisted or demanded greater oversight. One thing we find unusual about the present day is this has been really driven by a lot of student activism, demanding um, more control or oversight by uh, campus bureaucrats over their private lives. And we find that anomalous. And as as Samantha said before, we, we do think it's being done in a way that harms both men and women. Uh, I wanted to talk about Title IX, too, just because the sort of the identitarian mm-hmm. political culture on college campuses that is now right. uh, part of our larger culture. Uh, it, it seems that in, in some instances, Title IX is, um, uh, is a, a snake eating its own tail, uh, now you have uh, Title IX uh, cases being brought or cases being brought under Title IX against uh, single gender uh, female only programs and and scholar, whether it's a particular area of study or scholarship program and so forth. This idea of of, of separate but equal uh, doesn't work in the opposite direction any more than it did in the direction uh, that Title IX was instituted to cure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point. I was going to jump in um, at the end of, of the last question, but I'll, I'll mention it now. You know, you asked before why um, schools are adjudicating these matters at all uh, instead of just going to the police. And instead, in, in addition to all of the things that Mike brought up, you know, the one of the big reasons for that is the expansion of Title IX. I mean, what's interesting about Title IX is that if you look at the text itself, it's quite short. It just prohibits sex discrimination um, under federally funded education programs or activities. And it's really all of the sort of judicial and regulatory guidance of the past 25, 30 years that has expanded it into this sort of behemoth that it is now, this sort of all-encompassing, you know, provision that's used to address basically anything related to sex or gender on campus. Um, So, you know, it's really that expansion um, that has kind of gotten us where we are today. And is that is that a positive development? I, I know from Mark Perry uh, over at Carpe Diem blog, University of Michigan econ professor. Uh, this is a, a few months ago, but there are uh, 
the Office of Civil Rights has now opened up 25 investigations at 25 different universities challenging single gender female only programs of various sorts. Is that is that positive or is that, uh, you know, is that just feed more of the identitarianism and the silliness? I mean, I'm probably never somebody who's going to say that government growth is a (laughs) positive thing. So uh... when we come back with uh, attorney Samantha Harris and Michael Thad Allen, I want to talk about uh, Title IX cases against colleges with respect to female only programs. More with Samantha Harris and Michael Thad Allen. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with attorneys Samantha Harris and Michael Fat Allen, and I want to uh, discuss the, the Title IX cases and uh, whether or not we see Title IX being. Uh, the snake that is eating its own tail with respect to the targeting of female only gender specific female only programs on college campuses. I think, look, if you poke around long enough in universities responses to title nine, you're going to find a lot of incoherent messaging above all messaging to the student body. And it's just very difficult. I think for students coming of age in this environment to figure out, I mean, what what we are uh, worried about is that it really is harming students' ability to become functioning, well-educated adults, right? And that's what is, I think, of most concern. And what you're pointing out is only one facet of that. There are many other conflicting messages. And what Samantha and I did when we began looking at university policies changing over time and what we began to see was going on on campus through our practices is that there there are dimensions to this that that we just don't even know about. We were surprised to learn about this tension between a kind of uh, promotion of permissiveness, sky's the limit, but at the same time, the uh, sort of hyperactive vigilance and surveillance of the student body on the other hand. It just, just it does not seem to go together. Well, I mean, what's in a sentence or two, what's your summation on campus culture uh, from your investigation and, and the... Uh, perhaps the, uh, the, the, the dogma behind the contradictions and policy and messages? Well, there's more than one summation, but I think one of the most important things that we want to get across is that there are a lot of people out there um, who paint this as a zero-sum game, right? That you have sort of compliance rights against respondents' rights, mm-hmm. men versus women, and really it's not. You know, you can have a fair process and you can have a system that respects everyone, and it's really, this is an issue about of everyone's rights. And we think that, you know, it's not a choice between you're harming one side or you're harming the other side. We think the way that schools are handling this now harms both men and women, harms both sides, and that universities need to find a way back to a saner policy. Oh, I would just add as a a side to that, many of these policies do benefit women as well. In other words, why wouldn't a woman who is being confronted with a an accused perpetrator who is lying to her face want to be able to cross-examine that alleged perpetrator, the accused student. I think they do. And I know we know from our practice that they certainly do. So I'm not sure why uh, there is 
there's a lot of heat but no light being shed on many of these issues because of the kind of false dilemma that this zero-sum game or that Samantha has um, has characterized. It puts this debate itself into a straitjacket, and we think that's part of what we call the dishonesty on campus. We we think that's part of it. She is Samantha Harris, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. Uh, he is Michael Fat Allen, a principal of Allen Law LLC and the author of The Business of Genocide. Both are attorneys representing students and faculties in these employment disputes and other campus misconduct proceedings. Samantha Harris, Michael Thad Allen, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. COVID cases are up, but uh, deaths are down. And all the emphasis is on cases being up and thus, the predicate for lockdown politicians to reinstitute some facsimile of a lockdown. California Governor Gavin Newsom suspending indoor dining at L.A. restaurants, telling people to stay inside for the July 4th weekend, even as there are pictures out of L.A. from protests that are going on, you know, the Black Lives Matter and related protests. And there's no commentary on that whatsoever other than you know, generic support from the same politicians telling everybody to stay inside. It's a little complicated. This is a topic that we've talked about quite a bit. Dr. Joseph Ladapo, who is an associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, has an op-ed in the journal on it. The earliest sign of the politicization of the virus. I mean, you could say it shouldn't be politicized. It's too late for that. It's happened. One of the earliest signs of politicization was the broad animus directed at protesters who objected to the lockdowns. The double standard and treated in the treatment of those opposing draconian lockdown policy versus those protesting other matters. The double standard in treatment of the various groups was political, writes Dr. Ladapo. Of course it was. Medical experts have also lost the empathy that previously characterized their approach to public health. Many illnesses spread as a result of personal decisions and behavior. And this is why public health experts uh, advocate pre-exposure prophylaxis antiretrovirals for HIV protection, needle exchange programs, drug users in the UK, e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. But this wisdom hasn't been afforded to the COVID-19 pandemic. There is little accommodation for people who avoid masks because of difficulty breathing, claustrophobia, or belief that one's face shouldn't be subject to public policing. Some medical ethicists have suggested that if ventilators are in short supply, patients who religiously use masks and adhere to social distancing should receive priority rationing medical care to punish noncompliance, for example. I mean, that these are the things that are actually happening as it becomes a matter of dogma, not science or data. And this is what Dr. Markle Siegel was getting to when he uh, appeared on Tucker Carlson. So yesterday, Siegel is at uh, NYU saying this. It's being widely reported that there's over 40,000 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. It's been widely reported that the South and the West have been hard hit. It's been widely reported that Texas, Arizona, California, and Florida are reversing aspects of their reopening. It's been widely reported that Dr. Tony Fauci says we could see as much as 100,000 
new cases a day. I'm not sure where that number comes from, but that's what he says. That's all been widely reported. Here's what hasn't been reported. As the case counts are going up, the death rate remains under 700 per 24 hours per day of new cases. Why? Why is that? Because most of the people that are getting COVID-19 now are young people. And the CDC just re released a statistic that again was not reported, that of the last 15,000 deaths from COVID-19, only 3.9% were under the ages of 44 years old. The same group that's now spreading it in Miami or spreading it in Austin, Texas, or spreading it in Phoenix, that group has mild cases. It's been widely reported, as you just said, that the hospitalization rate is going up, but it's not reported that it's not mostly COVID-19. It's actually the cases that were there because of the reopening, because they're now getting the elective surgeries they need, cancer operations, heart disease operations, hernia operations. That They're filling the hospitals. Only COVID-19 is actually getting in the way of that because these mild cases require isolation. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Gary Slutkin. He is a physician and epidemiologist who has led efforts to combat the epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, and AIDS. He's a former director of intervention at the WHO and currently tracking and advising governments on COVID-19. He's also the founder of the organization Cure Violence. Dr. Slutkin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. Uh, how do you react to uh, Dr. Siegel's uh, summation of what is being covered in terms of public dissemination and what is not? Well, it has partial truths in it, but I think it's missing some things. First, the, I mean, the hospitalizations due to COVID are going up in those places. And I think there, I'm hearing quite a bit of minimization of the severity of COVID other than death. In New York State alone, there's at least a couple hundred cases and a thousand cases elsewhere. The serious disease in people under 20, including with cardiomyopathies and um, what's called Kawasaki or toxic shock syndrome. There's people who aren't dying, who aren't even going to the hospital because they're trying to manage it at home, who are spending four or five months of bad fevers, blood clots, persistent lung disease some of them with all kinds of disabilities. So I, it's really a mistake to downplay the severity of this illness and its contagiousness. What I did appreciate and what he had to say is that the young people now are driving the infection rates and that, but there's epidemics and outbreaks happening among young people and in bars all over the place. And they may have mild illness or they may get serious illness. There are young people all over the country who are on ventilators. But even those who are just fine and riding their bikes around and looking great, including in Chicago, in where I live, I'm scared to death of them. And they're carrying. And in many places, they're um, transmitting to their homes or into their workplaces. And this is very well documented now as we're starting to see the data from the contact tracer. And it makes sense. I mean, 1% of the American population is, represents 50% of the deaths. Uh, the CDC suggested that uh, only 7%, one in, uh, excuse me, 14%, only one in seven deaths reported was COVID solely. In other words, no comorbidities, no other contributing factors, one in seven. One 
percent, 50 percent of deaths. You look at the Florida numbers since Florida is all the rage for the media right now and the Florida numbers, people under the age of 55 represent less than one quarter of all hospitalizations and less than one fifth of all deaths. So I'm not suggesting it's not serious, that it cannot be serious for younger people. It certainly can. Whether you have comorbidities or not, you can not die, but also have lasting impacts from the virus. I will concede all of those points. But the idea, I should say, the discussion is about what to do about it. And the lockdown policies simply don't bear out in terms of sense. We, we look right now, actually, the American Institute for Economic Research did a review of the eight states in this country that did not lock down or had a light touch versus the other 42 that did or had a heavy touch. And the non-lockdown states had half the unemployment rate and one quarter of the deaths. The deaths in the lockdown states were 4X those in the non-lockdown states, with New York leading the way, even as Andrew Cuomo is somehow lionized while he and other governors like Whitmer and Pritzker and Baker uh, and Murphy sent infected people back into nursing homes. The most catastrophic decision, arguably, that has been made by any politician. And yet we're still talking about how that it should be reported. Anybody who gets infected should be reported breathlessly like it's a death sentence. And it's not a death sentence. Ninety nine percent plus of people survive and live to fight another day. I mean, that context is important, isn't it? Dan, let me just throw a few other things into this. The, the comparison of states is was largely having to do with rural states that were unlikely to have as serious of a problem as a place like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, which are heavily crowded places. And they're going to need more behavior change. Because you don't need that much behavior change if you're living out on ranches and stuff like that already. So let's just put that as a place marker in terms of that comparison. The other is that we're so early in this. Like this, these cases of toxic shock syndrome and cardiomyopathy in people in kids and teenagers showed up within in New York State in the next group. It showed up later. The same thing happened with flu, um, uh, the 1918 flu. The older people were first, and the younger people people got into the, the serious problems later. We're in a very early stage of this. And so, I'm, and you know, when we use these words like lockdown, it sounds very scary. And so I, what I'm saying is, and I think Illinois and Chicago are doing this fairly smartly, is that they're watching the numbers very close. But see, when something starts to go up, it then starts to go up really fast and then even more fast. And so this is the phenomenon of invisibility and exponential growth. And before you know it, your hospitals are really jammed. Listen, I know people who have died. I know parents of people who have died. Okay. I've had people on my staff who, who said, I can't breathe. I've never been so sick in my life. This is not a distance phenomenon. When we come back with Dr. Gary Slutkin, I want to uh, get to the issue of the transmission by children, which is transmission of the virus by children, which is virtually zero, as so stated by the point person on infectious diseases at the World Health Organization. More with Dr. Gary Slutkin. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
We're back with Dr. Gary Slutkin, epidemiologist. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the virus's lethality. And I'm not trying to minimize how lethal the virus can be. I'm just saying the entire context, because what we're, we're talking about is the, pub, the is, is the public policy decision making. And I mean, you know, you you were at the age and I'm sorry, I'm exercised about this, but I'm just sort of up to my 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 limit with some of the reporting on this and some of the 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 fact free pandem- uh, pandemonium that is being engendered. I mean, you were that you were at the double. We're all getting distracted. Well, well, all getting well, wait, wait, Do- doctor, hold, hold, you, you were at the WHO, you were at the WHO and you have the, the, the infectious disease point person at WHO come out the other week and say, you know, there's basically no evidence or very little evidence that uh, that children transmit the virus. And so in the context of, of 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 reopening schools come the fall and then, you know, she is excoriated by a particular political uh, uh cohort and you know walks it back in and then there's you know it's scrubbed from the who website what she said i mean is she an infectious disease expert or not was what she's saying based in fact or not and and so the silencing of dissent and the the narrow casting of information seems to me always uh calls into suspicion the person doing it and the people doing it are those that are advocating draconian policies by the way you're saying illinois did a good job Pritzker was one of the governors who introduced infection, infected people back into nursing homes. It's idiotic. I think it, it. I think that we're all of us have gotten distracted when we're talking about Trump, about WHO, about China, about politics. I think we really should. We need to have a goal of stopping the spread of this virus and doing it in the context leading the most normal life that we can to be as safe as we can and and being as normal as we can and this is doable now we can argue whether something is overdone in terms of suggestions and something and things that are underdone my opinion which is based on reading a lot and studying a lot and watching what's going wrong in some places at this moment is that i don't think these bars should be open Sorry, I do. I do not see that. I mean, there's like a joke of a, a virus walks into a bar. I mean, I did this is in a in really what is the most serious pandemic in a hundred years, which is in an early phase. This is an incubation chamber, and I do think we should be wearing. There should be more mask wearing, and then let us get through. Is there any science period. behind the masks? Is there any science behind oh, mask wearing? God, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It reduces transmission in the hospital. It reduces transmission within the home from someone who has it. It, And it also improves the whole situation of a community in a country. Well, I'm I'm not I'm not not talking about the psychological benefit. I'm talking about in terms of disease. I'm talking about the spread of the virus. Do you have do you have any are stopped by the by the mask? And very, very effectively. And there, and for you yourself, if you're wearing a good mask or you're doing it right, they will prevent the the much of the spread to you. I'm I'm looking at uh, uh, more than a dozen studies from medical journals like Epidemiology and Infection, American Journal of Infection, Influenza, and other respiratory viruses. 
uh, Clinical Infectious Diseases, Volume 65, Issue 11, December 2017. And they have they all of these studies draw precisely the opposite conclusion to what you're suggesting. But you say say there are studies it's out not, there that it's not accurate. It's not it's not accurate. I don't know what you're referencing. Well, I, I... Yeah, there if if there's 40 studies about masks, 30 of them are going to sh- show an effect, and it's shown it's shown in the home, it's shown in the hospital, it's shown in the community, and it's shown at country level. And there also it makes biological sense because it's being spread from one person's mouth into the air into another person's nose and mouth. Uh, 2019 study from 2019 study published in JAMA and 95 respirators versus medical masks for preventing influenza among healthcare personnel. And uh, a conclusion. You're talking about medical masks. Now, in the in the healthcare setting, they really need the medical masks or the surgical masks. In the other setting, believe me, the medical masks and and everywhere else, the medical masks and the surgical masks are better, too. They're still trying to keep those better masks for the healthcare providers because they don't have enough. Uh, one last question, just going back to, you know, you talked about non-lockdown states versus lockdown states and, you know, the, the, the non-locked states being uh, more rural. Well, um, what about rural areas within states? I mean, should we do this on a community basis, too? Because, for example, in Illinois, yeah. where you have a metropolitan area in the northeast and then uh, yeah. the other two thirds of the state is rural, there's been a very different experience. And in point of fact, uh, cases and hospitalizations and deaths topped out about two months ago. And yet the governor of Illinois treated the entire state uh, the same, and that seems to be not sensible and not based on science or data. Well, he's probably basing it on science and data, but your point is still extremely relevant and because everything is very local. I mean, even within Chicago, and that's why we really need to be smart, even within Chicago, where some the city as a whole now is going down in terms of new cases, but the area where I'm living, it's going up. And you can look by zip code. And why, and why is it going up in the area where I'm living? It's probably because of the bar use by the young people. Mm-hmm. But you can see the percent test rate and the number of new cases is going up. So what you're pointing out is very important. It's very hyper-local. And also some of the places that you're talking about that are rural and high, more highly spaced, they are less likely to have a problem, but then they can get problems. And so they have to be watching. Everybody needs to be watching what their trends are and dial forward or dial back based on um, what's actually happening. And this is this is not a, a stable process. It's a dynamic process. That, that's what the word epidemic is about. It can. I mean, you put 10 people in a bar and then suddenly you've got 10 and then you've got 30. And then, I mean, there's all kinds of things that spread from such incubation points. All right, we're gonna we're gonna have to uh, we're we're gonna have to leave it there, doctor. But I, I do appreciate uh, you indulging me in my uh, you know <laughs> animated uh, sense uh, and animated self. I appreciate it, Doctor Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist. He's led efforts to combat epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, AIDS. He's a former director of intervention at WHO and currently tracking and adv- advising governments on COVID nineteen. He's also the founder of the organization Cure Violence. Doctor Slutkin, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. I appreciate the interaction and the interchange with you very much, Dan. Enjoy it.
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, many have uh, offered comparisons between the uh, rioting and the general civil unrest that has occurred over the last uh, several weeks in America to uh, previous iterations of such civil unrest, uh, civil unrest, uh, L.A. riots of 92, Detroit and Newark riots of the late 60s, Chicago as well, 68. But uh, Michael Lind argues uh, this time it's a bit different. The uh, economic and social dynamics present in 2020 America different. For more on this, to get a, a deeper distillation of how it's different. Pleased to be joined by Professor Michael Lind. He's a professor of practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, author of The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Michael Lind, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, why is it different in 2020 as compared to 30 years ago or 50 years ago? Well, if you look at the protests and also the, uh, the riots associated with them, it tend to be in the same areas, the downtowns of uh, mostly large cities, governed almost exclusively by one-party democratic governments for decades or generations. So the difference in the 60s is you had two separate sources of unrest. One was African-Americans protesting uh, within inner-city neighborhoods, within poor inner-city neighborhoods. Uh, For example, in the riots that followed the murder of Luther King Jr. At the same time, you had a more or less unrelated uh, unrest on college campuses by college students uh, protesting the Vietnam War and, you know, uh, associated with, with various left-wing causes and, and sexual liberation of the free speech movement. What has happened in uh, 2020 is that you have uh, these something like these two groups from the 1960s, but they now are concentrated in the same big cities. And in particular, you have a very large group of underemployed college-educated people, they're mostly post-college, from uh, in their 20s and 30s, who have gone to New York, to Washington, D.C., to San Francisco, to Austin, Texas, uh, in in search of opportunity, which uh, is not there. And so, and this explains the left-wing protests as distinct from the protests against uh, the kind of police brutality that was associated with with the killing of uh, George Floyd. So there are really two protest movements taking place, but they're in the same cities. There's the uh, kind of traditional, sadly, uh, African-American protest against police killings, and, and that is happening good times and bad, unfortunately. And uh, then it was kind of replaced and hijacked by a left-wing protest led disproportionately by young white people in their 20s and 30s. Well, so, uh, so, so, so I mean, but so, so do you see this as, as at least partially analogous to, you know, Leonard Bernstein hosting the fundraiser for the Black Panthers at his Manhattan penthouse, as famously uh, recounted by Tom Wolfe? Uh, you know, the, the Champagne Socialists... Uh, uh, trying to buy off the uh, uh, the disruptors and that with whom they feel some kinship or some white guilt or some white man's burden, 
Um, the only difference now in 2020 is that uh, some of those people at the party are now on the streets as well. It's, it's exactly analogous. Uh, <clears throat> Tom Wolf was a friend of mine. He told me that after he published his Radical Chic article, uh, making fun of uh, Linda Bernstein's Party for the Black Panthers, uh, a number of rich liberal socialites began inviting him to their parties, hoping they would make him, he would make them famous by ridiculing them in the New York Times. <laughs> Boy, I mean, that really speaks to the vacuity of that set, doesn't it? Holy, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and, and also, I, I think there's a parallel in the 60s because, uh, you know, in, in the 60s, the radical left campus protesters tended to be the children of the, you know, moderately liberal upper middle class, lawyers and doctors and professors and professionals. And, and that's the same this time. And they mostly share the values of their parents. Uh, you know, they just want to pull down statues and smash windows. But, you know, they're not actually rebelling against their parents. They are rebelling against the values and traditions of working class Americans. Right. Now their parents now their parents are the ones in charge of all those cultural institutions that they're, you know, decrying the colleges and universities, the civic and 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 uh, arts and cultural institutions. I mean, who who runs them? All of those uh, 60s leftists. Um and I want to pick it up right there because um, you in your piece on this topic uh the rioters and the rentiers you, you talk about uh, the uh, payoff that Democrats still need to do if they want to hold their solidarity and marginality constituency together. Uh, more with Michael Lynn, professor of practice at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin, right after that. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back we're speaking with michael lynn he's a professor of practice at the lbj school of public affairs at the university of texas at austin and author of the new class war Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite, which I highly recommend, very good, and it's been influential in terms of understanding what's exactly happening in this country. A lot of you've heard, uh, including on this show, a lot of other scholars pick this idea up that the real divider in America today is the college degree, which uh, Michael Lind has been the tip of the spear in articulating and substantiating that claim. Before the break, we were talking about um, the scions of the 60s journalists and and radicals and disruptors, as you say, saying, increase my allowance now. You know, you have to continue to fund the infrastructure around cultural Marxism effectively. That's what I would say. It's not what you said, but that's what I would say. And um, and in your piece, though, on this, you talk about how the patronage machine that runs most of America's big post-industrial cities has paid off the public sector unions and the academicians and the professional set, but they're missing a group. And the group they're missing is out on the streets right now. And it really presents a, a problem for them if they don't figure out a way to co-op them as well. And, and so explain who they're missing as part of their necessary coalition. Well, that's an accurate description. Just to back up, most big cities in the U.S. for decades have been kind of one-party democratic dictatorships. And it's not that they're coercive. It's just the Democrats win every election, right? So the primary is the only real election. Right. So obviously, they are providing something to get these super majorities of the vote. Uh, And so I argue that uh, their major donors tend to be the financial sector, Wall Street, tech companies, 
of Silicon Valley you know, entertainment and so on. And they're treated quite well because they're the golden goose in San Francisco if it's tech or in, in New York if it's Wall Street. You know, and they have to flourish in order to pay for these expensive city budgets. And much of the city budget goes to public employees who are, who are pretty well off, unionized public employees, including the police, but also, more importantly, the, uh, the teachers unions and, and civil servants who, unlike the police, are almost exclusively college educated. So there's a class divide mm. within the public sector between the unionized civilians and the unionized police. Uh, the problem is, the, and the university sector also, you know, is favored by the democratic patronage machine. The problem is the universities, and I teach at one, have been uh, turning out too many people with degrees for jobs that don't need degrees. The New York Fed did a study recently showing that one out of three Americans with a college diploma is working in a job that doesn't need one. So like a third of our college graduates will end up in Starbucks. You know, or A lot of them move to the city because they saw girls or they saw Seinfeld or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And they think, you know, they live in a brownstone and have this exciting urban life. And then they end up, you know, they're 30 years old and they're working at Starbucks, you know, with a master's degree and $50,000 worth of debt. So I, I think, you know, if you read between the lines of the demands of the urban white left young people, it's mostly things like more funding for the arts, more funding for nonprofits, you know, uh, more funding for social service organizations. It's not actually more funding for poor urban people. That's not what this is about. This is about the redistribution of income among college-educated whites in big cities. About how do the uh, the various uh, arguments for reparations fit into this, including from people who are who are thoughtful and uh, and properly respected, like uh, like BET's Bob Johnson? Well, if the, the argument for reparations is nothing new. It goes back to the fifties and sixties was rejected by Martin Luther King Jr. and Byron Weston and the other civil rights. I, I understand. I, sorry to interrupt. I understand that. But but I, I guess my point is to say this is being picked up now as almost a litmus test issue for Democrat candidates for office, including the presidency. And so that that's what makes it a little bit different, the momentum behind it now. And so I wonder how well, that I, fits I, into I think it. The alternative to reparations was actually helping out poor African-Americans through universal programs that benefit poor whites and poor uh, uh, Hispanics as well. Better jobs, better education, you know, better health care, and so on. So you can see reparations targeted to African-Americans as simply another aspect of this urban democratic patronage machine, right? You give NGO mm-hmm. jobs mm-hmm. to the white college-educated kids, and then you give reparations to African-Americans. You defend the public school monopoly for the uh, urban teachers unions. So everybody you know, in this clientelist system gets a specific payoff, right, with, with these uh, corporations and banks headquartered in these cities basically paying for the party. And, and so why do the banks and corporations pay for this? Because actual economic and, and social reform would be costly to them, right? Well, they're, they're against unions. You know, they're against limits on offshoring production to China. All of the things you would have to do if you really wanted to uh, rebuild the working class in this country. So consequently, it's easier just to divide the population into little narrow-casted 
identity groups and then have a different payoff for each group. And in terms of the payoff, uh, they vote for the Democratic Party. And it, it seems like Republicans are getting into the act perhaps in, in a different sort of way. This this Juneteenth holiday issue, and I know you've written about statues, but this is sort of in the same category to me. Uh, you want to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. You want to erect a statue of Major General Gordon Granger. I don't have any problem with that. But when Republican senators Ron Johnson and James Lankford introduced this amendment to replace Columbus Day with Juneteenth, and they invoke, they don't want to put the U.S. further in debt by having another paid federal holiday, which would cost $600 million. Uh, I mean, you're right. <laughs> they don't want to put a, a U.S. that has, you know, $26 trillion, really about $120 trillion, if you include unfunded uh, entitlement liabilities and debt. And now they're fiscal conservatives. They don't need one extra federal holiday. You want a Juneteenth federal holiday, fine. But when you are going to replace Columbus Day with it, isn't this just another way to try to appease, apologize your way into absolution for Republicans who don't know what to do? Well, yeah, but 100 years ago, the reason we had Columbus Day, and they put up all these Columbus statues you know, around the turn of the century, 1900, was essentially to, to give a symbol to Italian-Americans without, who were then very working-class, struggling immigrants, yeah. without doing anything to help them. right? So the whole Columbus thing was a payoff to Italian-Americans. Columbus was just the most famous Italian-American, even though he worked for the Spanish monarchy. Uh, and since Italian-Americans had ceased to vote, you know, like other white ethnics, they're mostly uh, uh, Republican now, at least the working-class Italian-Americans. And, you know, in that case, the Democrats have said, hey, you don't work for us. You don't get your holiday anymore. We're going to take down your statues. I mean, I think it's as transactional as that, you know. He is Michael Lynn, professor of practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, author of the book, which you should read, you should buy, and then read. The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Michael Lynn, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. And uh, the left is uh, moving on from defunding police to uh, expand to defunding the sheriffs, too. This op-ed in the New Republic from Melissa Batchelor-Warnke, she uh, particularly goes over some controversial cases involving the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, argues that um, the sheriff's departments don't get enough attention. But the L.A. Sheriff's Department, the largest in the world, 18,000 employees, is famously corrupt and it's not an outlier in that respect. There are more than 3,000 sheriff's departments in the United States, and though many have engaged in the same type of corruption and abuse of force practice by cops, they receive less public attention. So let's just go ahead and categorically defund them. Well, you're going to get some uh, resistance to that. That resistance is going to come from sheriffs like uh, Daryl Daniels. He's a sheriff of Clay County, Florida, which is in the Jacksonville DMA. And uh, he has a message to people that want to come to Clay County and do anything other than peacefully protest this Fourth of July weekend. Uh, you want to peacefully protest? Not a problem. You want to break the law? Problem. And uh, we're not appeasers here in Clay County. Sheriff Daryl Daniels, Clay County, Florida. Uh, by the way, he is a black gentleman. So help me God. But God is absent from the media's message or Black Lives Matter or any other uh, group out there that's, that's making themselves a spectacle 
disrupting what we know to be our quality of life in this country. In Clay County, we have a great quality of life. We have a great relationship with our community. But across this country, not so much. I just wanted to take a stand with these men and with these women who feel the same way that I do. Lawlessness, that's unacceptable in this country. Lawlessness, that's unacceptable in Clay County. And if you threaten to come to Clay County and think that for one second that we'll bend our backs for you, you're sadly mistaken. I know what happens when lawlessness prevails. And in this day and time, God is raising up men and women, just like the folks you see standing behind me, who will have strong backbones and will stand in the gap between lawlessness and the good citizenry that we're sworn to protect and serve. So you can threat all you want. You can say, hey, let's go to Clay County or let's go to some other peaceful county where their problems don't exist or not so much like across this country, where relationships are great and not strained and where the people support their sheriff and support the men and women who wear the uniform. And you'll have something waiting on you that you don't want. Yes, we'll protect your constitutional rights as long as you remain under the umbrella of peaceful protest or peaceful march. But the second that you step out from up under the protection of the Constitution, we'll be waiting on you. And we'll give you everything you want. All the publicity, all the pain, all the glamour and glory for all that five minutes will give you. Is it a threat? Absolutely not. But somebody has to step up in front of the camera and say, enough is enough. Tearing up Clay County, that's not gonna be acceptable. And if we can't handle you, you know what I'll do? I'll exercise the power and authority as a sheriff and I'll make special deputies of every lawful gun owner in this county. Hello, uh, Daryl Daniels uh, just became America's sheriff as far as I'm concerned. Um, love the message and the theme music. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.